G'day there, guys. Welcome to Blowing Cartridges, episode 11, 1 1. I am one of your hosts, Zachary Clark, joined by your other one host, uh, Brendan Tam. Brendan, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Zach, and I think it's quite fitting that we're episode 1 1 because 1 1 is the very first level of Super Mario Bros. The instant classic Nintendo Entertainment System game that is definitely a game that many people want to preserve, isn't it? Yeah, want to preserve. 35 years old this year and um, something in museums. that You know, I think it's at uh, the Smithsonian, I think, has that saved in their video game Hall of Fame uh, and probably a few other museums around the world, no doubt, uh, as well as you know, sitting safely on many uh, a shelf uh, across the world. Uh, of, of avid NES and Famicom collectors, as well as probably various uh, variations of that one game on GBA or Wii or whatever it might be. But we're not really just talking about Mario today, are we, Brendan? We're actually here to talk about uh, preservation of games in general and the importance of it, uh, or perhaps not importance of it, if that's what we, we think. It's it's a bit of an interesting topic and an interesting time to discuss it because you know as we discussed last week we've we've just seen the precipice of a couple of new video game systems come out which have mixed levels of backwards compatibility uh, as well as a, a continual push towards the digitization of of games distribution uh, which has all sorts of positive and negative I suppose impacts on uh, the preservation of of video games but. Before we sort of delve into the the drudges of it, there's one thing I have to ask you, because, you know, we're collectors of games. You are a massive collector of games. Does video game preservation have an element to why you collect things? Is that is that a factor or is it maybe a coincidence and a, and a byproduct of your collecting habits? Well, I think it is related at the very least if you... Look at the hoarder mentality I think every (laughs) collector has, whether it's collecting video games, collecting books, collecting widgets, collecting random rocks you find on the beach. (laughs) It's all about this mentality of, well, you want something so then other people can't have it. Or conversely, you want something because you know there's a limited amount of them out there and that if you don't get it now, you might not have another chance. And I think... You very much do see that in video games, and I think I feel that personally when there's particular games that I might not have that much of an interest in. Well, I have enough of an interest in it to know about it and to be looking into purchasing it, but I occasionally do make purchasing decisions based on this idea, well, if I don't buy it now, well, then I won't have it, but I know then I will then know that other people have it, and I'll feel like I'm missing out, so... It's a bit more of a hoarder mentality than this idea of I'm, I'm <laughs> buying it so I can preserve it because, of course, the idea has crossed my mind that, oh, one day I can pass on my collection to a museum or to someone to display it or or something along those lines. But those ideas are probably delusions of grandeur because at the end of the day, how much does my video game collection matter? Yes, there's a monetary value to it. I could go on eBay or go to the side of the street and try to fog off everything in it, and I'd probably get a pretty penny for it. But what what do you think it's actually worth, Zach? 
your collection or just preserving games in general? I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're if you're willing to give me a big uh, dollar amount for my collection, then we can talk off off show off when we're not recording. But yeah, I'll, I'll refrain from commenting just to avoid any um, uh, thieves maybe hitting you up trying to um, you know make a pretty penny. <laughs> yeah, look, video game pre- preservation. I guess I think it's worth a lot because uh, it's something I think about a lot. Because at least for me, with collecting, part of it is me wanting to make sure I always have access to games I like uh, in some way, preferably you know the way I played them originally, but not necessarily have you know has to be that way. Uh, and when I think about that more globally uh or i don't know if that's the right word but just in regards to the broader video game playing population uh i think it's it is important to try and make sure games remain available to be played for people in the future that want to play them because you know you and i have the the experience of not being there for day one right we weren't there for the dawn of video games with pong and you know atari 2600s and so there are definitely a lot of games i have come to know of through you know youtube or just you know people talking about them online and then want to play them and sometimes struggle to uh find ways to play them that are easy uh or really feel authentic i suppose and so stuff like that really tipped me off to thinking it is important to think about how we make sure the stuff released today remains you know available for people to play in the future which is sort of an interesting concept because if you look at other art forms mostly due to just how old they are i suppose more than anything it's a real mixed bag in terms of how well things have been preserved and in many cases not preserved and then lost to time. Um, whereas video games being so young, there's a there's still kind of that possibility and it may be gone now. I'm not too sure, but there was a possibility that we could have saved everything, right? Because it's being only, you know, 40 or so years old, maybe 50 at this point of <laughs> losing track of the years. There was a, There is a chance that we could potentially hold on to, you know, at least some version of every game ever made. Um, I suspect it's it's already too late. We've probably lost some, but it's an interesting idea to think about that we could have we could reach that goal. It reminds me of an event that happened over a decade ago, but it was in the media again last year, I believe, late last year, and that was the Universal Fire of two thousand and eight. The record, well, record company, a movie studio. It burnt down in the US and they lost a lot of the masters CD or master tapes of or classic albums. A lot of notable artists were signed to that label or that label purchased other labels and it all went up in flames. So a lot of the original versions of the, of, of that art form was destroyed. So I think it is very pertinent to think about that side of the preservation, the development side of preservation, because you're exactly right. I think there was the opportunity to have saved it all because at the end of the day, video games are, if you scrape away the physical aspect that we get off a a store shelf, it's bits of code that's put into a cartridge or a CD or now digitally online. So in theory, you should be able to back that all up. But of course, in the 70s, well, in the 80s and 90s, 
there wasn't that drive towards that. There perhaps wasn't that idea in the industry that this was an art form, that this was something remarkable, this was something worth preserving. It was, well, we're going to put out this game to make a ton of money off these absolute idiots <laughs> and we're going to ride that all the way to the bank. It's a young medium, but it definitely has changed over the last 40 years. And I think it's quite interesting that the preservation trend has really took off in the last 20 years, I'd say, very much since we've been a part of it, since it's been one of our hobbies that we partake in. And I think that's because you've had people that grew up with the medium in the 80s. Well, they reached adulthood, they were able to have a lot more disposable income than they did when they were teenagers. And they started thinking, well, they started having nostalgic thoughts about the past and really wanting to hold on to their childhood memories. I think that's what really has driven this trend that we're really seeing reach, I think, a height, especially at the moment. Yeah, I definitely agree that, you know, that sort of first generation of game player, uh, I think, brought it to light. Um, the need to preserve stuff as they, you know, had fond memories of something, went back to go and try and play it and either found it going for insanely high prices on, uh, on you know, eBay or just found they can't actually get a copy of, of whatever game it is they played as a child. And it's sort of funny because there's this interesting reversal of problems, I suppose, that's occurred since the early days to now where... Back in the day, there was probably only a limited number of games being made because there was only a limited number of people, you know, with that skill set, I suppose. And they didn't necessarily think about preserving, uh, at least not to the same extent we do today. Um, but through, you know, the the proliferation of the uh, prolifer, uh, I'm going to say this wrong, proliferation. Yeah, keep that in. We don't need to edit that out <laughs> um, of the uh, the internet. The knowledge about games is spread and the tools to preserve them is spread and become more abundant. But on the flip side, we now have way more games being made that actually trying to preserve every single one of them is a, you know, I, I would say not not just a full-time job, but probably the full-time job of quite a decent-sized team of people if you really wanted to get every little, you know, asset flip off steam or uh really you know small prototype uh mobile game released by some student developers uh it would be a, a real gigantuan task to not only preserve it but then put into some sort of accessible or um uh, organized way of of filing them uh even if it's online to 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 be of any use to anyone it's almost a question of to the that extent is it even worth saving everything like is there just a lot of garbage out there that really holds little value to society and and you know future developers to actually try and play i think you're exactly right because other mediums have faced that exact same question that exact same the exact same dilemma if you look at books if you look at movies if you look at music these are mediums that are like video games in that especially in the 21st century, anyone can lay down a sick track. Anyone can write their own book and put it up on Amazon or put it up as an ebook, and anyone can make a home movie. But are you going to preserve all of this? Like, what do you, what limits do you put on 
what's worth preserving and what's not because I think there are there are limits even if they if we don't think about those limits because if you take books for example there's institutions called reference libraries that attempt to basically have a copy of every book published in a certain country or geographical location there's one in Scotland that I went to quite a bit when I was doing my master's research uh, the National Library of Scotland and that's a reference library and I think they try to acquire a copy of every book published in the United Kingdom but I think there are limits to well what constitutes a book published in the UK that we're going to preserve they probably do filter through well who published it was it an actual publishing company or was it old mate Jim in his garage with a printing (laughs) press but then old mate Jim in his garage with a printing press might have printed out something that was remarkable and maybe there's a manuscript copy of it and it took off later and it was published by someone legitimate. So who knows? You, you, you get all these... I think you find yourself quickly in the thick of it, in, in just a lot of reads trying to figure out, well, yes, we want to preserve culture. We want to preserve video games because that's part of entertainment culture in our society. But you can't capture it all and you have to be discriminant it's like any sort of historical archive so there's an art well there is curate there has to be curating of any collection there has to be curating of any museum you can't just have a museum of stuff and have everything on display that you'd like to have on display because at the end of the day that's just your grandmother hoarding everything she once owned yeah, that's a really good point. And when I think about some of the efforts being made to preserve games, or at least some of the ones I've you know stumbled across through my you know trolls trolling of the internet, um, you know, one is uh, in a, you know to take a local uh, play it again, uh, which is a a local effort to try and preserve you know every Australian made game, uh, which in and of itself uh, is is a growing number in this day and age, but it, you know, at least has that limited scope, right? Sort of like the publisher you were just talking about uh, of, of just focusing in on Australia. And, and I'm sure they also have their limits where they're like, well, you know, is random, you know, mobile game put out by, you know, nine-year-old Jim, uh, Jim Jr., son of the <laughs> Jim in your publishing story, um, <laughs> who is, lives in Australia for some reason. Is you know is that that's that's just like a flicking a ball around uh, on a screen? Is that worth preserving versus you know something that's a bit more unique and uh, maybe has a bit more to it? I, I'm not too sure, but um, still you know I think the scope helps. Uh, and similarly, I remember I don't know if you've watched that Netflix series yet, uh, High Score, which was covering quite a lot of you know historic video games. Yes, I have. Yeah, well, I, I think you might remember there was one episode that they we're talking about that one effort to try and preserve every game with some sort of LGBTQ uh, element. And there was that one game that I, I wish I could remember it. Um, but he, uh, he lost the source code through moving over the years and people were trying to help him find it again. Cause otherwise it was lost to time. Yeah. It was a do it was sort of a doom clone based on yeah. the g- gay rights struggle of the 1980s. Or early nineteen nineties yeah. in San Francisco. Yeah, which is um, which is interesting in of itself because you know I mean I haven't played the game, but I suspect being a Doom clone, it, it, <laughs> I'm sure game 
Gilead-wise, it doesn't do a ton different, but uh, has that reason for them to, you know, being an early sort of example of a, you know, a, a game featuring um, uh, queer people in, in a way is, is, you know, quite important to them and that's why they want to preserve it. That goes back to the heart of this discussion in that to want to preserve something, there has to be another reason behind it than just out of preservation's sake, I think, because there is an element of that. There's people that will try to collect every single game published for a particular console, which I think is nearly impossible in this day and age because you have all those small publishers that are still publishing Wii games to this day (laughs) or what have you, and there's all these weird Wii U games that only got releases in, like, Poland or the far reaches of Eastern Europe. So it's becoming very a lot more difficult. And I think that's not necessarily a bad thing because it does make you stop and think of, well, from a historical point of view, it's a fantastic thing to be able to know exactly how many games was published for a particular console and have a precise list of every single one of them. And we were able to do that quite easily up until... Well, I'd say up until the end of the cartridge generation, just because cartridges had that, well, Switch uses cartridges, of course, but I'm talking about your Nintendo 64 era because cartridges were still, they were proprietary media and they were expensive. So you only had a finite amount of them and they all had to be produced by Nintendo and they put all these limits on it. So you could track every single game and you can't do that anymore. So I think what I'm trying to get at is just because a game is released on a platform in the modern era doesn't necessarily mean it holds any significance whatsoever because it might, as you mentioned, it might be an asset flip on Steam or whatnot. And does anyone really care about that? Yes, you could, I guess a historian or a sociologist or someone interested in that could dive into, oh, let's look at every single asset flip on Steam and write something profound out of that. But I think that's, talking about something completely different than preservation at that point. Yeah, and I mean, I think the reality is there's also going to be some things that probably are quite interesting and quite unique that just never really got discovered um, that will get lost, unfortunately. Uh, and again, just due to this, the massive product release, I, I don't know how we solve for that. Um, again, other than paying people to actually sit there every day and and play every single video game that's released at least for a little bit to try and ascertain is this something we need to to preserve uh or is this something that can um let society <laughs> determine whether it, it gets preserved or not for every successful artist you probably have a hundred unsuccessful artists but that doesn't necessarily mean that what they produced was inherently inferior to that one successful one it just means that for the successful one there was a variety of reasons why they succeed and the others failed so i guess that's why it's very subjective at the end of the day 100 mm, percent. but you were just talking about consoles for a second there and i think that's an interesting point to pivot on a little bit here because there's some pros and cons to to console, I guess, preservation, right? Um, obviously, as you mentioned, one of the, the semi-pros is there is a bit of a finite list of at least uh, a number of the consoles into what games are on them, right? So, you know, there are, for the most part, things like the NES, Atari, even arguably things like the PlayStation 1 uh, and all the Sega systems, 
are pretty well documented as to what games came out of them, uh, at least officially. And uh, people have done, I think, a fairly good job of at keeping them, if not available. You know, we know there are people that have copies of those games that can be played if uh, if there was ever a need in the world. But one of the cons is inherently the hardware itself, right? Uh, there's only a limited number of functioning original Atari 2600s out in the world. Uh, and while there are plenty of uh, reproductions and emulators and that kind of stuff, there is sometimes a, a view amongst the preservationist and, and you know, by, by extension collector crowd of that you need to play these things, you know, quote unquote, the way they were made to be played on that original system. And to make it even more challenging, often on a type of television being a you know a, a CRT or, or something else potentially but I think pretty much always a CRT that that isn't in man, you know made today and again their numbers are dwindling and the people who have the abilities to make or repair them are probably few and far between in this is modern era uh, I guess what is your thoughts on needing to play games on their original hardware versus you know I boot something up on xbox uh series x today and download a a rom of it or you know go through other means to uh download a rom and emulate it on a pc it's something i've thought about quite a bit actually and i think i've changed my opinion a number of times because there's a number of different ways of viewing this obsession with original hardware and the so-called importance of playing a game on original hardware because on the one hand, you have well exactly what you described. There's the idea of, well, you need to play the games exactly how they were intended. But then on the other hand, directly opposing that is the idea of, well, for a lot of developers, they were hamstrung. They were limited by the limitations of the error. So just because their game was released on an NES or an Atari, for example, and it plays the way it does on that original hardware doesn't mean that was their original intention and original vision of the experience. And I think there are obvious pros to, well, what do you call them? Would you call it clone hardware? What what would you call it analog? Because it, it does, it's not yeah. emulating, it, it's not running an emulator because it's running hardware. It just is yeah. able to read original cartridges. So I don't quite know what the technical te- terminology is, do you? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know for sure. I, I I would call them reproduction like systems. I don't know, and and reproduction cartridges as well, because you see a lot of those around. Again, whether that's the right term or not, I, I'm not too sure. But you know, effectively non-official knockoffs. Uh, I know that's a bit probably harsh to call them, but is is fair, I think. Um, of of the original, you know, system that they're they're again, is it not really emulating in terms of the the software sense? Uh, and what we think about when talking about emulating, but if we just take the broad word emulating and what that means just in the English language, they are emulating what the originals did. I think I agree with you in general. I I, I think there's a, a charm to playing things in their original form, uh, and I do enjoy it when it's available. But as time has passed, the convenience of just being able to play a game pretty much, what you know, close enough to what it was 
uh, on my you know current television and without having to plug in an, a, a, some sort of old box that I've got in the shed is is really appealing to me and I don't feel like I'm losing a lot by doing so uh, other than maybe a few rare examples like the one that I always think about is um, Super Smash Brothers melee because when I was you know in uni the melee scene was still fairly strong I um, mean it's still fairly strong today but you know at least amongst the people I knew. And yeah, people would not play, you know, melee off of a CRT, uh, like on a on a HD television, because it had to be on a CRT to get the right, you know, input lag, the right frames. Uh, anything else just wouldn't work. And I can see the value in that, particularly at that hyper competitive space. You need to sort of play it as it was intended. But at the flip side, you know, this. Particularly this month, uh, we're seeing you know people have because of COVID had to take to uh, emulating and using mods to actually play the game online to prevent that scene from dying. And I'm curious to see if many of those sort of stalwart nup got to play on a CRT with original GameCube controllers. Uh, that crowd has started to warm up to like, eh, you know, as long as I can keep playing melee, I'm I'm happy kind of thing. Ultimately, a lot of the stigma that emulation received, I think, is because of that late 90s, early 2000s ever emulation, which was entirely software based on personal computers for the most part. And I'm sure you explored as well, because I did. Yeah. You probably remember that it was never particularly ran well. There was always issues with performance, there was always issues with particular games wouldn't emulate well at all. You'd freeze up a lot. The quality didn't always... The quality wasn't representative of what it would be like if you were playing it on a Super Nintendo or a 64 or a PS1 or what you are emulating, and there'd be issues with the sound and a whole range of things that would really diminish the experience. And I think for a lot of gamers... That especially of our generation before, they can remember that. And that's entirely the market today for retro games, I think, is that generation of people that remember emulators being something that did it, like was a neat thing to do, but had connotations with piracy, had connotations with poor quality. So we stayed away from it. Whereas things like your analog consoles, your analog NT, the, the NES, the Game Boy one they're releasing now, one of the pros of that is, well, you can only use these if you have original cartridges. You need to pl- you need to insert your original cartridges. Yes, you can have flash carts and you can put ROMs on them and do it that way. And a lot of people do. But and then you can generally play most games to the same degree as on original hardware. So you're getting that experience. But you're not just getting that experience you would if you were playing on Super Nintendo, because as you mentioned, you're able to play it on HD TVs, you you can have a lot more usability and it's a lot easier to use. Whereas, yes, there's ways for original hardware to be played on HD TVs and even on 4K TVs, or but generally it involves a lot of investment. It might involve some modding. A lot of that's out there now. But then I guess, and I as I mentioned, I've changed my thoughts on this. I used to be firmly in the field of, you should play on original hardware because it's more authentic and there's something special about it. I bought a Sega Saturn in 2013 for that very reason. But 
I think ultimately, if you're going through all these hoops to play these original consoles on modern TVs, there's not much more difference in getting one of those new consoles that you can do it in a much easier manner and you're getting pretty much the same experience. Yeah, I tend to agree for the most part. I think the only challenge we sort of really face from, again, a preservation perspective uh, when it comes to hardware is when it comes to really niche-specific peripherals, I'd say, that create a unique experience, I suppose. And not as peripherals, I suppose, but even things like arcade machines, right? Like, I could emulate something like, I don't know, Luigi's Mansion Arcade uh, or, you know, Daytona USA, and I could still play a game, and it would sort of kind of represent the game I'm playing, but without the machine that's moving and shaking and um, doing all the specific actions it's designed for, I'm not really capturing the core of that experience uh, that it was designed to be, which is part ride, part video game. And that's still kind of present throughout, you know, the history with consoles and stuff. You've got things like, uh, I think it was Steel Battalion with that crazy, massive, like, (laughs) uh, command controller on the Xbox. All the way to today with something like a Mario Kart Live, right, where even though it's some would say it's barely a game, uh, you you need those carts, those those remote control carts, as I'd say, to to play that. Uh, And the game isn't physical. So if you, in 50 years' time, don't have a Switch with that downloaded on it, uh, that game, even if you have the remote control card, is is lost to time. I fully agree, and it is one of the reasons why I've stubbornly but surely held on to one of my family's old CRT televisions, solely for the reason that if I decide I have, I want to go back and relive something from my childhood. I- I can pull out my cousin's NES that we lent from him about 20 years ago and never returned and plug it in and play Duck Hunt because Duck Hunt can't be played on modern televisions. You can't use the zappers. It just doesn't work due to the technology. And it's an example of something that is purely stuck in that time in a way. It's stuck within those technology constraints of that era that I believe it was on it was on the Wii Virtual Console, wasn't it, Duck Hunt, I believe? They eventually did it because, uh, unsurprisingly, everyone was like, the Wii, you know, that's perfect for light gun games. And uh, I think they eventually did a more souped-up Virtual Console release, uh, adding in the IR pointer, which uh, is probably the only Virtual Console game to get that level of treatment. Exactly. But, well, that's gone now because the Wii Virtual Console shut down, so... Which is another aspect of preservation we'll get to later in this episode. But Nintendo are probably some of the worst because their consoles are kind of just weird controllers a lot of the time, right? (laughs) Like, you've probably tried playing a DS game on Wii U or, you know, we're seeing challenges now even with something like getting Mario Galaxy playing on a on um the switch you know there's some compromises that had to be made with the with the pointer controls and that kind of stuff and the whole question of mario sunshine without the the analog triggers yeah exactly i mean it's um it, it sort of poses a question because like you know if i think about the ds which is one of my favorite you know systems and i love a lot of the games on there if i didn't have any ds hardware available to me Sure, I definitely can run these games through emulation on a computer or some other device, 
like a phone or something which has a touchscreen, but it, it's just not going to be the same. You know, it's not going to feel the same, and and it will be noticeably different compared to say, you know, a sixty-four game where if I'm playing it with a modern controller, yeah, it's a bit different, but it's good enough. You know, it still functions uh, as I kind of want it to, and I don't just have to rewire my brain a little bit to think about, okay, I'm not pressing a C button, I'm using a stick, and other than that, I'm good to go. Imagine playing Kid Icarus Uprising without the 3DS stand. It'd be absolutely a different experience, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, it'd just be atrocious. um, We need to make sure we keep those stands well-preserved because they're an unreplicable accessory. Uh, No one could create a stand that could hold a 3DS uh, themselves ever so they're they're very important jokes aside that's precisely an example of a game being created with restrictions in mind it was designed to be played well with basically one analog stick well yeah circle pad i guess the terminology is if we're going to stick to nintendo lingo so there's that interesting part <laughs> of it yeah 100 percent. um and then you've got all the you know, stuff like I look at, um, trying to remember what the system was. I feel like it was a Magnavox, but I could be wrong. That had like you stick things on the screen to play the Vextrix. game. Like, like, was the Vextrix? Yeah. Okay. Yep. And all the way to it's, it's sort of modern equivalent in the labo, I suppose, where it's again another example of having this weird, very easy to break and perishable sort of accessories that can probably be semi reproduced from a, uh, from a printer if you had the right access to one um, but will pose challenges for you know preservationists I suppose in the long run exactly because well yes you could print out your labo cardboard but from a preservation point of view is that still labo because it's not the original cardboard I guess it, that, that brings it back to the first discussion of preservation versus collecting would you argue that that's more of a collector's mentality of you need the exact original thing or can it also because i guess there's an element of preservation that preservation is like well you want a museum and you want original oh i have an original manuscript of lord of the rings i have the original manuscripts of harry potter you can see where the authors wrote notes and made changes and that sort of thing but there's the other side of preservation which is and we've talked about it with emulators and the like is that we want people to be able to play these games we want people to be able to experience the experiences that existed and that's more about accessibility than this is exactly the original cardboard that i used when i played this 20 years ago son now you get to use it as well yeah it's a real interesting one because you're right like the way i almost envision a museum how it would be set up would be like you have your your glass you know cabinet and in it would be a few completely unopened untouched say labo kits uh and maybe some sheets which are on display that haven't been popped out then a few made labo toys but again still behind glass where no one can touch (laughs) and maybe if we're lucky some original stuff out and about and given it's been on clearance uh so regularly at eb and pretty much everywhere i'm I'm sure there's abundance of it going to be around for a a good while um but out around for people to actually give a go and and play um probably with a few tears and stuff here and there but yeah it it is a question you've always got to you know 
people will face behind these very, very perishable uh, accessories, I suppose, is whether to let people touch them or just keep them, you know, locked away, which in many ways defeats the purpose of preserving them, I would say, which is to play, compared to a collector who may just want to have it in mint condition because that's that's the thing they're they're chasing, not necessarily the uh the preservationist element. Speaking of museums, there has been a trend over the last well I'd say at least the last decade of video game museums and video game exhibits. And they take a whole manner of different forms. For example, at a very base level there's things like the Nintendo experience on Swanston Street that has every Nintendo console behind a glass case as you described basically and you can go there and you can look at an original Game Boy up until Virtual Boy 3DS I don't think they have a Switch there yet but I'm sure that will come by the next generation and then you have similar museums like I haven't been there yet but the Gamesman in Sydney that's a video game store an independent one and they have museum out the back is my understanding that has a, a whole range of consoles and games and just memorabilia and things you'd expect to see in a sort of collector's museum. But then you have more interactive exhibits like we touched on. There's at PAX, there'll be retro video games that you can play. Nearly 10 years ago, there was a traveling exhibit in Australia called Game Masters. And that the point of that was, I think, very much to show the history of video games from its inception to the present day of 2012 at the time and they did that through a range of exhibits but playable exhibits so you could sit down and play a Dreamcast you could sit down and play a Vextrex you could sit down and play a Atari Jaguar well across the boundaries of this was something that has been preserved this was a collection put together but it was one to be designed to be played it was one so people could experience the past of gaming i guess well i guess what what do you think is a more effective approach because and do you think that because gaming is an interactive medium it it has to be preserved and exhibited in a different way to say a conventional museum yeah i think the interactivity is the main thing that needs to be present because while unfortunately that will mean mean somewhere and tear uh, I think that's that's a big point of it, right? Like, you can certainly experience games without playing them, but I think playing them is a really beneficial part to to the whole, you know, game playing experience. Which is a really dumb thing to say, but but hopefully it makes sense. And uh, when you, when you think about it from this perspective, because you know, if I'm say a up and coming game designer, and I want to look at some reference material. I don't just want to read about it. I don't want to necessarily just see YouTube videos about it, although that may be good. I want to get my hands in it and sort of see how it feels to play and and experience it um, so I can then help that inform my next video game that I'm making. You know, whereas if you think about other art forms, you know, if you're a painter, well, you you just need to look at the painting. You don't need to touch it necessarily. Uh, Or if you're a again an author where you can read a book and you might touch the book but you're not going to destroy every version of the book in the world by doing so so you can get what you need from it without any sort of risk of uh destroying a 
a permanent version of, of that thing, uh, which is, again, mostly true with games, because as we said, there's definitely ways to play most games without this risk of, of destroying them forever, thanks to, again, emulation and ROMs being out there. And so it's really more specific to those uh, edge cases, like, again, Labo will be, the Vectrex sort of is, uh, not sure why you're trying to emulate the Vectrex, but if you are, you know, let us know. Curious to, to see what you're thinking about. But yeah, those kind of things which do have a bit of a perishable element that needs to be sort of balanced, I suppose, uh, going forward. And obviously, I think the answer is where you can try and avoid using the original hardware if you don't have to kind of things and really just sort of limit the amount of times people are touching those things. Uh, and thus, by virtue, limit the amount of, of uh, damage gets, that gets done to them so it can be preserved for at least a little bit longer. Because I think that's something that a lot of us forget about because whilst it's not as bad as, say, Apple's planned obsolescence policy for iPhones and their products that after a given period of time, they basically were designed to break down. So you'd have to go to your massive Apple store and buy the upgraded version, the new release. Whilst video game hardware isn't as fragile, it's still moving parts. It's still something that wasn't necessarily designed to survive for decades on end of constant use. So there is potentially the period we'll face where it's very difficult to find original hardware, that the original hardware you'll find is broken or needs to be repaired. And even on a repairing aspect, there's some components that will slowly become obsolete and difficult to find because ultimately, well, it's obsolete technology. It's We can go back and play a Super Nintendo and NES and enjoy it and have a great time, but it doesn't ignore the fact that this is old technology that wasn't necessarily intended to be played 30 years after it was designed. Even if it was designed to last, a long time it's it's just also impossible right to make something that uh will never break you know they've come close with the game boy which survived uh you know a bombing in baghdad and <laughs> still working in the in the nintendo new york store but uh lots of you know i don't think many things like that so you know your mileage may vary i suppose on your individual systems that shows the importance of emulation and of capturing the games themselves, or and, and I guess capturing the hardware as well, because, yes, from a purist perspective, you can argue that when we reach the point where you can no longer play an actual NES as it released in 1986 or what have you, that we might have lost something. But ultimately, we wouldn't have lost the ability to experience that. It would just be experienced in a different way, and... I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And I think that's why remasters and re-releases have had a positive impact. And even official emulators like Virtual Console and downloadable emulator games you can now get on most modern hardwares, it opens up an avenue to experience the games. And maybe you're not experiencing them the way they were intended to because maybe they have quality of life improvements, maybe... They've been remastered to a degree that, yes, they still look like they did in the 80s or 90s, but it's sort of an idealised version of what a nostal- someone suffering from nostalgia syndrome would look back in the past and remember 
oh, that's how the game looked. That's how I played the game. Now, that's sort of the facsimile that's been projected into the present because I think that's going completely off tangent, but I think that's what a lot of great indie developers have done with games like Shovel Knight and the like, that they've been able to capture what people in the 21st century think an NES game was like. It's not accurate at all, but that's what a lot of people will sort of reminisce about their childhood and think that's exactly like a game I used to play. I think that brings up probably an interesting topic to discuss, which uh, I don't know how it came up, but I discussed with somebody in one of our discords recently, which was that it's arguably better to not capture preserve games i guess but to preserve footage of the games being played uh at the time of their release which i sort of initially disagreed with and i to an extent i still do in, in particularly the word that it's better to preserve that but i definitely have come to the view that that is also an important element of preserving games in a sense and i think the obvious example to look at is is anything that's got a significant online component uh, because if I look at most MMOs today, they are not the same as the MMO mm. I was playing at launch. And even if you were to get that original version, make a private server and play it, uh, it's not the same. It's it's not the same cultural experience. It's not the same. Uh, it doesn't capture the feeling of, of what everyone was going through at that point in time. And you sort of have to rely on videos of people playing and talking to their friends or online forums where people were discussing stuff that have been archived to really try and uh, I guess capture what those games meant at that point in time to the people playing them but yeah curious to to see if you have a a different view on uh the importance I guess of, of you know do you think it actually is more important to get those those moments captured you know through video or other means versus actually preserving the game itself It depends on what you mean by most important because a question like this very much awakens the historian part of my mind. And purely from a historian's perspective, what you just described is true to the extent of, well, if I wanted to go back and research, I want to, I'm a sociologist, I'm a social historian or what have you, and I want to write a paper on the significance of World of Warcraft in 2005, well, I'll have to go back and try to find old footage. I'll have to go back and trawl through forum posts and try to reconstruct personal experiences people had. But that's the difficulty with what I just said, personal experiences. It's very difficult to actually recreate what someone was feeling at a particular top point moment in history it's very difficult to recreate a social phenomenon or the not recreate a social phenomenon but recreate the impact of a social phenomenon and what people actually felt that lived it because yes you could have a video of someone playing the game you could have a video of someone talking to a camera and talking about how it impacted them And that gives us a lens into that, and that gives us an understanding of that. But it's just one side of it, because it does go back to the fact that content creators and people who make those videos 
there's a performative element to them. You'd have to question, mm. well, how genuine is it that someone has made a video depicting a particular event in one of these games? It's like, look at the whole Leroy Jenkins scenario in World of Warcraft. It became a massive social phenomenon, became a meme, but it was staged. Yes, the people who put the video up said that something very similar happened to them that they didn't record, so they went back and dramatized it and recorded what they believe happened. But aside from those people, we don't actually know what happened. We don't know what they experienced and what their actual experience at that moment was. We know what the stage proportion of it was. We we know the impact that had. We know the how it became a social phenomenon, a social icon. It became something people talked about. It was, an early, it was a very early meme in many ways. I think that shows that, yes, it's important to capture footage, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's better than playing the game, even if you're playing it, if you're playing it on a private server after it's shut down or you're playing it after the 10th expansion, you're still experiencing the game. It's just a different experience that someone had 10 years ago. And even if you watched 100 hours of footage from that era, I don't think you can recreate it. Yeah, I definitely agree. I I think that point you made around the uh, the streamers and YouTubers playing games and, and how they uh, perceive while playing the games is important to really keep in mind because, yeah, I, I know I've streamed games a few times and I definitely do not act the same on stream or play the game the same as I do from just playing it in my, you know, by myself privately. Um, so, you know, in some ways... We're, you know, while that's going to be the most abundant footage, uh, the most useful footage is going to be any rare circumstances of like candid footage of, of people playing games without necessarily knowing they're being recorded. Like, I don't know, a mum recording a, a, a birthday party with, you know, four kids playing Mario Party or something <laughs> at a sleepover <laughs> is going to be, well, I mean, it's, it's arguably more useful than, you know, a bunch of 30-year-old drunk guys playing it uh, on on a, a video game website, which which probably doesn't really reflect what it was like at the time back in, you know, 1998 or whatever. And the footage you described is what we would call evidence, Zach, because a Mario Party party would only end in murder or chaos. So there's that <laughs> aspect of it. Yep. You know, it's uh, probably sitting there yeah, on a... Um, on a police uh, evidence shelf, just gonna hope that they don't um they don't burn it after uh the I don't know what I don't know if it's the same for police stuff, but for a lot of corporate company records, it's like seven years. Um, I assume not the same for police evidence, but I could be wrong. But yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things which it's I think anyone that wants to ascertain it's more important. It's like maybe for elements, as you mentioned, that historian ele- uh, aspect, but I think it's it's more useful as an accompanying piece of the puzzle uh, to having the software playable uh, in some fashion. Uh, so, yeah, that's I think, I think it sounds like we're on the same page with that. It's just good having the, the history buff uh, take my side on this one. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of the phenomenon of Let's Players because that is a similar dilemma of there's people out there who will just watch someone play a game and that's enough for them. And they won't then go out and buy the game themselves. And I remember, oh, it would have been about 2012, 2013, 2014, there was a few Let's Players that I would watch. And 
I remember watching a game like Heavy Rain be played and I watched a long Let's Play of that. It would have been, what, at least 10 hours. That's not that long of a game, but not that short either. And I came away from that thinking, oh, well, I've experienced that game in a way. I don't need to go out and buy it now. So while I had that view of it's better to play than watch, I think there is an element of games are now consumed advent of YouTube and streaming and the like. They are consumed in a different way. You can consume a game by purely watching it. So I guess from a preservation point of view, if you're trying to preserve the lived experience of video games, that is an important facet of it, that original footage in a, in in some ways. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I mean, I think those videos, particularly the YouTube Let's Play phenomenon, really hit on a lot of similar notes for why preserving games and collecting them is sort of deemed important by a lot of people. And it's that sort of wanting to be able to recollect uh, their past, which I mean, that's what I went to YouTube Let's Plays for back in the, back when they were still a fairly new thing. Was like, you know, I want to relive playing Mario Sunshine. I don't really feel like pulling out my GameCube and playing it myself, unfortunately, because I'm maybe just tired or whatever. But I'm keen to watch some guy on YouTube uh, play it and uh, comment <laughs> over it, and sort of also see did they have a, a similar experience to me. Uh, when they play it and hear their sort of memories, uh, it's not too dissimilar to when you talk about it with your friends. But I also, every now and then, will check out like an old game uh, as well, uh, just to see what it was like, uh, and particularly from the perspective of someone that um, maybe played it as a kid. Because, you know, like a good example for me is Earthbound. I've watched a lot of Earthbound Let's Plays, uh, and I've only, you know, sort of dabbled in playing it myself. Uh, when it came out on Wii U, I think, Virtual Console. So it's interesting to see why, I guess, people value finding ways, I guess, to experience these games that sometimes it's out of nostalgia, sometimes it's just to learn, but there's clearly a value in having them, you know, accessible in some fashion is, is probably what all this really proves. I think we can both agree that many of these games, they honestly just aren't worth playing anymore. You can go back to some obscure system like an Atari Jaguar, and the honest truth is the majority of those games haven't really held up, and to our sensibilities of of what we're used to as gamers, we wouldn't necessarily enjoy it, but you can go back on YouTube and you can find a channel of someone who grew up during that period who might have had one of those obscure consoles when they grew up and they have this enthusiasm for those games that even if they themselves admit that they didn't particularly enjoy them that they still find something positive about them that we just wouldn't experience and I guess adds value to those games that if we just went out and grabbed a Turbo Graphic 16 or whatnot and pulled up a game and played it a high chance of it is we wouldn't appreciate it to the same degree. So there's that aspect of historic preservation that video games as a media is quite different to others because when it comes to literature, there's there's classical literature. There's people still read 
Homer that was well written thousands of years ago. People still read Charles Dickens and Jane Austen. People don't just read modern literature. So I think there's this weird parallel in video games that a lot of people are trying to mirror that into in that they try to go back and play older games to experience it. But I think just due to the technological aspect of it, it's a very different beast. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And sort of another sort of unique element to an extent, I suppose, of games is, and something that's very topical, is the, I guess, preservation of unreleased parts of these games uh, or earlier versions that existed prior to the, the full release that, you know, are primarily stored by the companies that made them. But at the same time, you know, surface from time to time, sometimes through legal means. Uh, sometimes the company itself might do something official, although I'd say that's rarer. And and sometimes it's not even a proper, you know, full release of a build of a game, but just, you know, screenshots or concept art or things like that, uh, which you don't really see in other art forms, right? Like maybe books, you would have some sort of versions uh, that the author may keep. Uh, but, you know, if we again look at, say, paintings you as as an example you know i can't see the various stages of of um a, a michelangelo painting right like i can't see when it was just lines i can't see when it was you know the first coat of paint was put on i can only see the finished product in this day and age so i guess a few things to come from this but the first thing i'll ask is what do you think is it actually important to for us as the general public to have access to you know, earlier builds of games prior to their final release? Or is that more of a luxury, I suppose, that we're, if we get it, you know, it's interesting, but we it's not really necessary as part of this preservation, you know, initiative? I think it's an added bonus. It's something nice to have and and it holds value from a development point of view if you're interested in the history of game development or you're but in game developer yourself, you might be interested to go back and contrast a demo to the finished product and see what improvements they made, how they changed a particular game, how they changed particular mechanics to suit the final product. But I guess ultimately they aren't that important to, I guess from a preservation point of view, going back to an early analogy, it'd be fantastic to preserve every single thing you could. Like, do we... But then the question is, are there limits? Do we need to preserve every single dev kit a developer used? Do we have to preserve all the desk chairs they sat on when they produced Super Mario 64? (laughs) Is that important? Most people would say, no, that's not important at all. But I'm sure there's someone out there who would say, yes, the chair that Miyamoto sat on is sort of a holy grail of video game collecting and preservation it's it's an important thing and it transcends video games you can go to museums across the world and you'll find things as minute as that in a museum somewhere i, I can guarantee you you'll find oh this is a table that the, the declaration of independence was signed on or something along those lines of what what's important the historical document itself the the piece of medium itself or how it was made. I guess it's an interesting conversation. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I've thought about it a bit. And I guess where I sort of thought about it the most was with that 
what they've called the Nintendo Mega Leak in the last, sort of been staggered over the last year, I'd say, with bits and pieces coming out with, uh, you know, various early builds and um, development materials and whatnot being brought to light. And I have sort of mixed opinions in a sense, like, uh, you know, a lot of people were saying, you know, treating it a bit like Robin Hood, right? Like people have, you know, stolen from the rich and given to the poor. Uh, you know, they've given us something we, we deserve to see as fans and it's worthwhile. And I do get it because as you pointed out, there are there is some value to being able to see, oh, this is how they transitioned from the original version of Yoshi to the final version of Yoshi, right? Um, and you can sort of maybe try and backwards engineer the thought process the artists and developers went through at the time to get to the end point. But at the same time, I... There's two things. One, do we need every iteration of a game? No, because there would be so many tiny variations of a, of a game build that it would be, you know, with just minor changes each time, it would be ridiculous. But secondly, you know, the expectation that all of this is going to be publicly viewable at some point, I think really would change how developers and, you know, people working on games and really anything creative would work in a sense and you know a good example was there were you know private conversations sort of leaked as part of this and people used words that would maybe not be befitting of nintendo's brand so if there was an expectation of that kind of stuff always eventually making its way to the public people would have to be a bit more reserved in what they currently feel is a fairly private workspace where they're just you know having a bit of banter with their colleagues and maybe do a dumb little joke which would i think make developing a lot lot more boring but also stifle their thought process right like sometimes when you're trying to make something like even writing say an essay right you write a lot of crap Mm. before you edit it (laughs) down and get it to be good and if if you were thinking about oh shit someone might see this version of this this document at some point probably be way more you know you get way more intense writer's block because you just don't want to put anything embarrassing or that could be taken out of context as offensive or whatever it might be uh, in that initial draft, I suppose. So I think there is some value in letting companies either destroy or just not make public some of what they develop. You know, let them sort of pick and choose what will make it out there and what's of interest because, you know, Nintendo themselves have had some pretty interesting GDC talks release some interesting art books and, and history books of certain games where they have let slip some of these you know factoids that that are of interesting and people could use but at their discretion which i think is probably the main thing in my mind uh is is let them just choose what is worth releasing out to the public for a more broader sense of, of preservation what you just said actually reminds me of something that happened a couple of months ago in the the release of Golden Axed by Sega. It was basically a prototype pitch for a Golden Axe game about, I think, I can't remember the timeline, about 10 years ago or so. And, well, I think they were releasing a few different sort of small bite-sized games to commemorate an anniversary. Was it the 60th anniversary or 80 or... What not? I guess that doesn't really matter. But what my point is, is that they released a prototype and a lot of people would say, well, that's great. Like, it's public now. We can see a cancelled 
a pitch for a cancelled game, like, that's a cool thing because there's a whole aspect of the hobby that people are very interested in unearthing games that didn't come out because I guess that's a holy grail from a collector's point of view, this idea of there's games out there that we'll never be able to play. It's sort of that temptress out there that you really want it, but you just can't have it no matter how you try. But there was the other side of Golden Axed, which was, well, the name itself offended the original developers of it because it was two two Australians, actually. They went on and developed Assault Suit Cactus, great indie indie game developed by Australians. And they were honestly insulted because that was something that they produced under quite dire crunch conditions over a period of a, a week or two. And you can go on Twitter and read the story about it and it's all a bit depressing, interesting in many ways and depressing in other ways because it unearths parts of gaming development culture. But it brings up the idea whether such a thing should have released in the first place. Well, what was ultimately the value of it? Because you can argue that from a preservation history point of view that it was very important to see, but from an entirely more personal individual level, you can make the argument of, well, maybe it was better off staying dead that in hindsight, it was something that existed for two weeks. So in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't really that important. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one because, I mean, I think even, you know, the uh, the devs, um, I think it's Tim Dawson and Santana, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but Sanatana Mishra, um, former, obviously, Seeger employees, you know, I think they were pretty okay with the idea of it being out there. But, yeah, as you said, they were pretty upset with, the fact no one told them for starters, and two, um, as you said, calling it Golden Axe when it wasn't even like a in development game, it was a, a pitch that they were asked to work on uh, that, as far as they were aware, never got past pitch point. So it's not even like a pro, I guess it's a prototype, but it's not like, you know, a game that got cancelled. It, it was a game that never really started proper development. But anyway, yeah, I think it's. It's interesting to think about, yeah, is it better being released versus not released? Because, again, as you said, the more the merrier, the, the better, the more things we can preserve and, and, you know, have available to us. I think that there is good in that. But at the same time, you know, I'd be curious, you know, I, I played that Golden Axe game and it was not great. <laughs> like, as you would, I mean, I mean, no offense for something made in two weeks, actually fantastic. But um, for something... You know, if we would consider it a commercial released final game, it, it's not that, and no one, you know, from the development team claims it was. And you know, when we think about why I think there's good value in preserving games, which is again for us to learn from them and uh, and be able to use that in future development of games or really anything that you want to be inspired by, I wonder is there much value from that perspective of a of a game that never saw the light of day right because is it doing anything unique is it doing anything the best does it actually have any ideas that sort of you would only get from that experience that you could carry forward to your next game that you're making and it's the answer is probably probably not like i'm sure if you were hard pressed you could find something if you if you wanted to take on the challenge but you know, there's a reason things get cancelled and don't make it out, and it's usually because they're not fantastic. <laughs> and so other than maybe doing a case study on why it's not good and why it failed uh, for, for some of these cancelled games, 
you know, I don't think you're going to learn a cool new trick on how to improve your game because it's likely if the developers knew how to do what you're trying to figure out, they would have done it and their game would have probably come out. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah, it's a, it's a bit tricky to determine if it's how much value there is in, in releasing these pre-release builds to the public at some stage, even if it's uh, not straight away. In the Golden Axe example, it's the value of it is very much purely from a point of view that it's notionally a part of a historic franchise that has a lot of fans. And I think it would be very different, and we probably would have never seen it if it wasn't Golden Axe at all, if it was a original IP pitch, if it was something if it was a much more obscure IP it was pitching a new game for it. We probably would have never heard from it again. And I think that goes back to the concept that we are inherently selective of what we're preserving. We're inherently selective of what we're collecting. There's generally underlying rules into what we're going to buy as a collector, what we're going to preserve as a preserver. And I guess going back to your point of playing a game before it releases i think there's utility for it more in cases where the game hasn't released yet for example early access where you can offer feedback to the developers and you can improve the game as a consumer and that's quite a neat reversal that's happened in the last 10 years but i think i agree with you there's less of an impetus for us to be able to play a a build of a game that's already released and that we've already enjoyed. I, like, I, I see the point. I see the point of view where it's interesting, but personally, I, I honestly don't think it's that important in the grand scheme of things. That in fifty years' time, we need to be able to have the demo of Breath of the Wild that was played at E3 2016. Yeah, 2016. Well, I don't think that's an important thing to preserve. For example. You've just made a lot of people in the Zelda community probably very upset who <laughs> probably think very opposite. But I, I, yeah, I think in the in the broad spectrum of things, I definitely agree. Um, the final products where the most value is in preserving, uh, unfortunately, the easiest thing to preserve. Um, if anything, you know, coming back to the video discussion, I'm more interested in learning and hearing and, and reading or, or listening to de- the developers themselves talk about some of the challenges they faced getting to that end product than necessarily playing through those builds that they they struggled with because I think their insights probably is what's worth preserving, not necessarily the, you know, 50 beta versions that they made along the way. But yeah. Now, to completely move to a, a separate topic, but still in line with preservation, and I think very timely as we again have, have all digital consoles just released uh, for the PS5 and Xbox Series S, is is this digital sort of future we are inevitably going to you know land on? Uh, and it's something we touched on in our collectors discussion a, a number of weeks back and what that meant for collectors. But now I'm curious to discuss what it means for preservation because... You know, if we look at this last few weeks, we've seen some interesting examples, right, where uh, probably the most notable one is uh, PT, uh, which is that Silent Hills uh, demo game thing that was really quite good, like a really good short game, uh, and how 
it does not transfer over from PS4 to PS5 if you do a complete, you know, system-wide transfer of your data, Uh, which really means that game is effectively locked down on however many PlayStations still have it there on their hard drives and hasn't been reproduced, you know, subject to people eventually getting it off there and running on on a PC, which I don't think has happened yet, but I'm sure uh, eventually will. Which makes you really question, is there a higher risk of losing games now that they are going all digital? Or is it about the same and this is just a, a new unique challenge that we're facing in in the digital space? Uh, curious if you have any thoughts to those questions. It is definitely a new challenge we're facing and it's one that really the only answer is emulation. But even in cases like PG, that's quite difficult at the moment due to, well, the hardware was on and the level of emulation available for the PS4. Yes, in the future, that might be more easily overcome. But in the meantime, it's very difficult to be able to access those games. And the same goes for other digital games that are pulled from stores for a whole manner of reasons like copyright, happens a lot for licensed games like look at scott pilgrim versus the world the video game a lot of people love that game highly rated but it's taken about 10 years for that to be able to be accessible to the broader public again because it was taken off stores and consigned to i guess a shelf that no one could reach and i personally would have loved to play that game for the past few years i've always wanted to try it i was a late comer to the movie i only watched it last year and thought it was fantastic but wasn't able to go and play the game but now i'm able to do that and i guess that shows that there is some hope in many ways that the challenges can be overcome but it's definitely a new frontier in many ways and especially for games that are primarily digital only like Games on WiiWare, like WiiWare is not accessible anymore. It as a platform is gone. Like you probably you can emulate it, but it's a dead platform. And I guess that's my main fear for the rate we're going at and digitization of games that we'll reach a point where physical medium will no longer be a part of video games and we'll move on to something different. And it's well, it's very materialistic of me, but there's something just about going to a store and picking a game off a shelf and buying it or going to your mailbox and pulling out a game that you ordered and then taking it inside and opening it up. There's just something about that part of the hobby that it's quite hard to quantify, and I'm sure you share that as well, being a fellow collector. Yeah, definitely. Uh, From a collector's standpoint, I definitely appreciate the, um, the physical element. And as you said, it's hard to describe. Uh, But as you said, it's also, you know, because I have been burnt with some of these digital games. You know, WiiWare, I luckily downloaded everything I think I wanted to play um, off off that system. And hopefully I didn't miss anything that I'm going to regret. But oddly enough, the one I think about most is uh, is the iPhone. Got an iPhone 3 or something back when that was the iPhone to get. Uh, and and like any kid who gets their first smartphone, downloaded a lot of apps and games, and there were some actually you know quite fun ones that I've got fond memories of. And Flappy uh, Bird, due to the yeah, well yeah, Flappy Bird's one. Um, I remember playing one called Dizzy Bee, which I really enjoyed. 
and a lot of them haven't transitioned over to the newer models because uh you know apple at every certain number of years or iterations of, of phone require you to continuously update your, your game otherwise it just will drop off the store and not be playable uh and then couple that with as you pointed out earlier in the episode the intentional hardware obsolescence of those phones so that they do break and stop you know stop functioning it's it's pretty much now up to there needing to be a robust emulation scene for those games to survive uh, and still be playable, which is a real, it's a real shame when you compare it to say something like PC games, where yes, there's definitely points in time where certain games became very challenging to play on on newer operating systems, but over the last decade, probably more than that, almost fifteen years, I'd say. Uh, They've done a pretty solid job, but if it ran on, you know, Windows 7, it's probably going to run on, you know, Windows 8 and Windows 10 as well without too much of a hitch. Uh, So it's a shame to see those sort of closed network systems like Apple, you know, iPhones and probably to a lesser extent Android, but there may still be an issue there for all I know, mean that we are losing not just a lot of crud, but a lot of probably quite a lot of good games that people just haven't been as passionate about preserving. But, you know, to counterpoint the issues with digital, I guess the benefit is there is, you know, a lot more scope to reproduce copies of games, right? Like, you know, if I do buy a game on Steam, I can download and install it on a lot of hard drives if I wanted to. And if one of my hard drives dies, I can can pull out another one and, you know, still have a functioning version of that game. So... There are some benefits, but it's really system specific. Uh, and again, for some of those systems, we're going to have to really rely on emulation uh, and the ability to just completely reproduce ROMs to, to keep them playable in the long run. Uh, so it's it's not all dire straits or digital by any uh, stretch of the imagination. But uh, again, it just poses some new unique challenges and opportunities in the preservation space. Definitely agree. And even with the example you just gave, I, I don't think it would be possible because of DRM, which is another facet to it. But it would be possible if we're talking about GOG because GOG games yeah. are DRM <laughs> free. So the good thing, great thing about GOG is that they optimise games to be able to be played on modern hardware. So that's really, I guess, the shining light of modern day digital preservation of games that were formerly physical in that GOG has made an active attempt to go back and in many cases pull out licenses that a lot of people thought were dead and get old games re-released in a format that is as true to the state that they would have been when they were first released and Night Dive Studio is another example of a developer that is actively doing that actively seeking out these IPs to bring back to life so there's definitely a positive aspect to digital and definitely an important role it can play for to rescue these games and to allow people to play them, which is ultimately what we're about, I think. Ultimately, the main part of this episode, I think, is, yes, we discuss the preservation aspect of things from a historical point of view, from the importance of understanding video game culture as a idea and phenomenon, but ultimately, we're here to play games. We're here to experience the games and that's what matters yeah 100 percent. i think that sort of really summarizes 
you know, a lot of the stances we took today, right? You know, museums where we can experience these games and the best way of doing that isn't actually a, a building with games in it. It's a online way of, of playing them, whether it's streaming or downloading. I'll, you know, t- pick your poison, I suppose. You know, you're not necessarily going to be playing them on original hardware, but you'll you'll get the majority of the experience by playing them on a computer, most likely. So I think that really solidifies, you know, what we've been trying to say here, which is preserving games is important, but only to the extent that we can actually play them and, and gain some value from the playing of them. I couldn't agree more, Zach. And I think that's an excellent point to close this conversation and to pull out our cartridge and lovingly blow it and put it away on a pedestal because we must preserve every cartridge of blowing cartridges in every episode of blowing cartridges, don't we? Yeah. A hundred percent, and thank you for doing your part, uh, dear listener, by downloading it or you know listening to it, creating another copy that will live maybe on your phone or computer uh, forever. And so, you know, when the great the world gets taken over by aliens and we're all dead, and they're exploring our uh, various trinkets left behind to discover our culture, they'll they'll find this episode on there and, and learn about you know Brendan and I and how we are you know the best people that ever lived on earth and start to worship us as um as gods so i really really appreciate that (laughs) well zach you you say the darnest things yeah and now that we are gods uh you should listen to what we are ordering you to do which is to subscribe first off on whatever podcast app uh you're listening to apple podcasts or you know some other third party thing like i personally use you can leave us a review, preferably on Apple Podcasts, a five-star one to appease us and so we don't smite you. Uh, that would be highly appreciated. Uh, and if you want to pray to us, you can actually pray to us pretty directly. We're not like those other gods out there where you just go into some building and put your hands together and hope to the best that uh, they're listening. Uh, if you you know pray to us on, say, Twitter at BlowCartPod or Facebook at BlowCartPod, uh, we might actually respond. We almost certainly will at this point in time, I would say, given the volume of prayers we're getting is quite manageable. Alternatively, though, if you if you wanted to actually divide the faction, you don't want to play to both of us simultaneously. You think one of us is actually evil. And so you're going to pick a side and say you're picking the correct side, which is mine. You can reach out to me at Egorino, or you can try and purge Brendan by sending some sort of like, I don't know, devil sealing spell to at Tamazoid on Twitter. Definitely come to at Tamazoid on Twitter because we are the resistance. We will resist Zachary Clark and his cultish minions to the last breath. We will be victorious. Ultimately, we will lose many men and women, but we will be victorious and we will cast down the effigies and the statues and we will prevail. Well, we'll see about that. But I forgot to mention one more important way of getting in touch with us. Uh, it's a bit of an old school way. You know, people don't always use that this very much in this day and age, but it's like an email. You may have heard of it. And you can email us at uh, blowingcartridge at gmail.com, particularly if your prayer is going to extend that sort of hard what is it, 240 character count on Twitter now. I forgot when they increased it, what the new number was. You might want to go for the email uh, format. 
at blowincartridge at gmail.com. But with that, uh, we're going to preserve our voices for another week or so. Because uh, if we lose them, um, this show is going to stop. Um, so thanks for listening again. And uh, until next time, uh, keep on keeping on. Definitely do that. Because otherwise you'll be dead. And that's not good. Mm, no, preserve yourself. Uh.